This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 371 for Thursday, October 5th, 2023. And in today's episode, we take a look at Viltrak's second lens in their new Pro Lens lineup, which is their XF 27mm f1.2 for the Fujifilm X-Mount. And we also talk a little bit about the new iPhone 15 Pro Max. Now, this new Fujifilm X-Mount lens is a 40 millimeter in full frame field of view. So it's a 40 millimeter full frame equivalent and is one of the three most popular focal lengths for most photographers for street photography, with the other two being the 28 millimeter and my all-time favorite, the 35 millimeter. Now, I recently purchased my own copy of this lens as when I reached out to Viltrox for a loaner to review, they never got back to me. It worked out as I had planned to buy the lens anyway since their AF 75 millimeter F1.2 Pro is such an awesome lens and I already have that one and absolutely love it. Now, after using the new 27mm 1.2 Pro for a couple of weeks now, I am loving this lens just as much as I love the 75mm. Now, to me, the 40mm field of view is perfect for both day and nighttime long exposure photography, which is my favorite field of view for these two genres of photography. Now, I frequently, when I lived in Georgia, would go out and do daytime long exposures of some of the absolutely stunning waterfalls that you could find throughout the state of Georgia, especially up in Dawsonville um, and places like that. And to me, I just always thought that 40 millimeters was the perfect field of view for long exposure photography of those waterfalls. And I also used it when I would go out and do my nighttime long exposure photography. I don't know why. I just always thought that 40 millimeters was a perfect focal length for that particular style of photography. Now, the 40 millimeters is also great for landscape photography. Now, I know it's not as it's not a wide or a super wide, but it's still very useful for landscape photography nonetheless. And you have plenty of people out there that do landscape photography even with 50 millimeters. So don't tell me that you can't do it with 40 because you're getting an extra 10 millimeters of width over a 50. Now, this past weekend, I took my 27 millimeter F1.2 Pro up to South Boston, Virginia for some street photography and to film a YouTube video about this particular lens. And I had lots of fun and I got some fantastic images as well. I shot some of the images at F4 others at F8 for the buildings, but I did shoot some of the street signs and other smaller items up close using the F1.2 to get that killer depth of field. And I'll put a link to that unbox and review video in the show notes so that you can check it out for yourselves. And you'll see in the sample images in that YouTube video that even wide open at F1.2, you get Stunning results with that lens. Now, something that I learned recently via an Instagram conversation with Viltrox that ties directly into the title of this episode, Crushing the Competition, is that this is just the beginning for Viltrox and their premium lens line. They are not only planning more lenses in the F1. 0.2 Pro line, but they are also planning an even higher end line of lenses, according to a chat with their official Instagram channel. 
Now, what exactly this new line of lenses will entail for aperture and technology is, of course, a secret at this point in time. But considering their current F1.2 Pro line are lenses that are already cheaper in cost and higher in quality than anything from Tamron or Sigma. And let's be honest, I'm not putting down Tamron and Sigma. I'm not saying they don't make good lenses. They do, especially with Sigma's art line of lenses. But their lenses, although cheaper than Canon, Sony, or Nikon's, they are way more expensive than these pro lenses from Viltrox. And I am thinking that there's a strong possibility that their next higher end line of lenses could include some sort of image stabilization. But I am wondering if they will continue with the f1.2 aperture or go with a more common sense f2.8 as lenses with an f1.2 and IS would be very large and very heavy. I also wonder if maybe they have some sort of high-end lens coatings that they are planning to use on their next line of lenses that they're planning to release down the road. Now, for those of you wondering, I am certain that Viltrox will soon announce that they are going to offer this AF 27mm 1.2 Pro lens for both the Sony E and the Nikon Z mounts as they did for the 75mm. Of course, for those of you that are shooting Canon R-mount bodies, you are unfortunately stuck as Canon has been banning companies from making third-party lenses with autofocus for the RF mount. Although there has been talk that they've been relaxing the restrictions, but they are requiring third-party companies to submit their lens designs in advance, and they must be lenses that Canon is not currently nor planning to make in the future. So maybe you'll see an RF version of these two lenses down the road, or maybe not. We'll just have to wait and see. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the Liam Photography Podcast. You can visit the homepage at liamphotographypodcast.com for show notes and links. If you have questions, comments, or requests for topics or future guests you'd like to hear on the show, you can email me at liam at liamphotographypodcast.com. Also, be sure to check out the liamphotographypodcast.com Facebook group, and you can find me on Twitter at liamphotoatl. You can tweet the show just insert the hashtag Liam Photo Podcast. And now back to the show. All right, we're back. So on Tuesday of this week, I also had the arrival of my new i15 Pro Max in the natural titanium color. Now, I had been looking forward to getting this new iPhone for both myself and Tina, my wife, as this is the first model to finally sport a USB-C port, and on the Pro Max model, a five times optical zoom for the main camera. Now, mine arrived earlier than expected, but Tina's will be a little while yet as she wanted the blue titanium color, and those are still on pre-order. Now, I love the new camera capabilities with this new 5x zoom lens, and you can get some truly amazing results with it. Additionally, this iPhone comes with the default full-frame fields of view of 24mm, 28mm, and 35mm. And you can configure the default Apple camera app to load one of these focal lengths as the default field of view each time you open the camera app to take a photo, which is really cool. Now, I have mine set to default to 35 millimeters, of course. Now, there has been a lot of talk on the internet about the iPhone 15s getting hot, but let's put this into context. First, it is not just the iPhone 15, and it is not the fault of the iPhone, as the overheating is being caused by certain game apps and the Instagram app. Now, Apple has already released iOS 17.0.3, which has corrected the issue on Apple's side as much as they can. Now, when my iPhone 15 arrived on Tuesday and I first set it up, 
Mine got a little bit warm as it was downloading all of the 150 apps that I have installed. And that's what I usually have on all of my iPhones, on my main iPhone. But it didn't get any warmer than any of my previous models did when they had to do the same thing on the initial setup. Once the initial setup was completed, the phone has stayed nice and cool even when charging. So again, people are blowing this out of proportion and they're not telling you the full story. Now, I don't have all the details on what specific games were causing the issue, but I do know from reading a lot of articles and seeing a lot of video reviews about it, that it was specific games causing the issue as well as the Instagram app. Um, one of the best YouTube channels that you can watch about Apple-related stuff is Brandon Butch's channel. I follow his channel. He is one of the most knowledgeable people on Apple-related devices, especially the iPhone, and he can give you all the details in his recent video about that. Now, one other thing I had not personally heard about, but one of my friends an old friend of mine from high school, Clint, was telling me uh, he was talking about people complaining that the iPhone 15s bend easily. Now, I'm not sure how this is possible since it's made from fairly durable titanium 5, uh, which the 5 has to do with the, the thickness of the titanium, I believe. Um, but I have heard these kind of complaints over the years about almost every model of iPhone. And my response to those people, as well to my own as to my own son, Darren, has always been, quote, don't put the iPhone in your back pocket and then sit on it, dingbat. I mean, honestly, how dumb does a person have to be to put their iPhone or any phone in their back pocket and then sit on it and then complain that it gets bent? Come on. If a back pocket wallet starts to get bent or curved over time from being sat on all the time, as do your debit and credit cards inside it, then why would you think your phone would be immune to that? Use your head. Remember, all of your weight is sitting on that phone and your butt is not flat. It's curved. So if it's going to bend or curve, whatever you're sitting on, whatever's in your back pocket, that's going to happen. Now, the other reason I would not recommend sitting on your phone is I don't know about anyone else, but I personally have no desire to crack my phone screen and then have that broken glass cut into my butt and have it go and have to go to the hospital and get sewn up because of it. Now, you may laugh, but I have actually heard of that happening to people from a couple of friends of mine that are doctors where they had to treat patients for that particular injury. They had their smartphone in their back pocket. That was their natural habit was they would put it in their back pocket and then sit on it. And they sat the wrong way one time or just did it one time too many. Their screen shattered and the glass got lodged into the flesh of their butt. And then they had to go to the hospital and have the glass pulled out and get stitched up. No, thank you. That's not something I want <laughs> that I want to go through. So for goodness sakes, don't put your smartphone in your back pocket. Use some common sense, people. I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm trying to help you. If you don't want your phone to get bent, don't sit on it. Come on. Get yourself an OtterBox or another type of case that comes with a belt clip and clip it to your belt. Wear it on your waist. Slip it in your front pocket or just carry it. That's what I do. You sit down, you set it on a table next to you or whatever the case may be. It's not rocket science. Get one of those lanyards and hang it around your neck when you're not using it, whatever. But don't put it in your back pocket. You're just asking for problems. I mean, come on. All right, so now let's take a look at a couple of news stories from our good friends at Petapixel for this week. Photographer buys and restores treasure trove of centuries-old slides. A photographer who bought a box of dirty and dusty photographic slides for $33 or 27 euros at an auction 
was amazed at the quality of the images that are believed to have been taken at the beginning of the 20th century. Roger Liptrot from the United Kingdom purchased the centuries-old pictures and went on YouTube to find a tutorial on how to clean them up. Quote, the majority were really crisp. Uh, some were slightly blurred, but in those days, if someone moved slightly, that would happen. Liptrot toils petapixel. The fascinating photos are believed to be taken in the northern England town of Milton, close to Manchester. However, little is known about the photographs, and the only clue is a name written on the box lid, Ernest uh, Temporally. Liptrot believes that Temperley is the photographer who took the photos that offer a glimpse into a very different world. Quote, for that time, Temperley is good, says Liptrot. Glass slides always fascinated me because they're so big, so the quality is there. For the early 1900s, I think they're smashing. And there are some absolutely gorgeous images in this collection. Liptrot, 70, looked through old records for the town of Middleton and found a Mr. Temperley listed as a 24-year-old calico printer's apprentice and presumes he is the photographer. As for the camera, Liptrot thinks the slides are four-inch square glass. Quote, I would think it was the type of camera where it had a tripod and you have, uh, and you have to throw the cover over it to do the pictures, he adds. After Liptrot had restored the photos, he scanned them on a flatbed Epson scanner and wants to share the images in the hope that someone might recognize some of the people in the images so he can find out more details. Quote, they were in such a state and hadn't been touched for ages, he tells the BBC. They were dirty and dusty, so I couldn't believe it. I was blown away. They are just terrific. And they are. These, like I said, are some very, very amazing images. And I always love to see older images from the early 20th century or the late 19th century, um, just because I've always been intrigued by the early photographic technology and images that were captured on this earlier technology and the amazing quality that you could actually get considering the technology was so primitive back in those days and the skills of the photographers that operated this early photographic equipment. It's just absolutely amazing. And I highly encourage you to check out that article for yourself. You can find the link to it in the show notes for today's episode. Kodak DCS, why the revolutionary digital camera system failed to catch on. Sometimes having an original idea isn't everything. Innovation can strike at the wrong moment, fizzing out before a chance to materialize. In that sense, too little, too late may be the be only the flip side of the even more frustrating too much too soon. Nowhere is that more evident than in the tragic fate of the Kodak DCS, the original pioneer of digital photography. Let's wind back the clock to find out where the Kodak DCS came from, what it tried to do, and why it never found the success it was going for. Origin, Stephen Sasson and the Digital Camera the year is 1975. The global camera market is expanding at an unstoppable momentum, powered both by advancements in technology as well as manufacturing. The 35mm film SLR rules as both the most desirable camera design for consumers as well as the most versatile tool for professional photographers. Higher up the ladder, 120 medium format film is the benchmark by which image quality is measured among fine art studio photographers and esteemed members of the press. Though the most recognizable camera companies during this time include mostly Japanese names like Nikon, Canon, Olympus, and Fujifilm, there is one huge American corporation towering above the rest, Kodak. Not just the world's most successful and profitable producer of film, darkroom supplies, and equipment, Kodak was also number one in camera sales for most of the 20th century. This did not, they, uh, they did this not with professional SLRs, uh, 35 millimeter SLR systems as the mainline Japanese brands, but instead with a whole fleet of inexpensive compact cameras like the famous Instamatics and Brownies. 
The global success of this business strategy gave Kodak a truly enormous R&D budget, a budget that it happily poured into dozens of special projects to discover and develop new photographic technologies. Steve Sasson, at the time a freshly graduated electrical engineer, was one of the hundreds of scientists tasked with such a project. In his case, it was to find a practical use, any use, for the recently invented charge-coupled device, or CCD. Sasson soon realized that by manufacturing a light-tight box containing a CCD and equipping it with an optical lens, you could emulate the functionality of an ordinary film camera. By hooking the CCD up to a storage medium, the resulting images could be digitally recorded. By the end of the year, Sasson had managed to produce a small prototype of his concept. This prototype used a lens from a Super 8 movie camera, ran on nickel-cadmium batteries, and featured an experimental CCD built by Fairchild Corporation, the Fairchild Corporation that measured 100 by 100 pixels. That's an imaging resolution of 0.01 megapixels to use today's lingo. For storage, Sasson's prototype used a cassette tape. With no moving parts and performance far beyond the few previous digital camera experiments of the 60s and 70s, Sasson's device was the first digital camera that was entirely self-contained and that could take, record, and store images without the need for bulky stationary equipment. Despite that, his project remained on the fringes of Kodak's R&D radar and his invention was hardly publicized at the time. The first Kodak DCS. Though Kodak was reluctant to acknowledge the huge precedent the Assassin's invention set, company management was well aware of the future potential of digital photography as a technology. As the 70s drew to a close, Kodak allocated more and more funds to an outgrowth of Sasson's original project. As before, the company used CCDs, first those loaned by industrial conglomerates like Fairchild, later ones built in-house by some of Kodak's many internal divisions, to study and extend the possibilities of recording images electronically. Sasson himself remained intimately involved in these efforts and was partially responsible for some of the great fruit they would soon bear. The Megapixel Sensor and Where It Led By the early 1980s, Kodak's project leaders reached a major milestone. For the first time, they managed to create a functioning CCD imaging system that rendered images at 1 million pixels. Despite these momentous advances, Kodak kept its digital camera research under wraps for most of the decade. One reason for this seems rather quaint today. Sales of compact film cameras were just far too strong. Higher-ups at the company feared that the fresh and relatively untested digital technology could backfire and eat up the profits that these more established products were generating. However, there was also a more grave justification for maintaining all that secrecy. Some U.S. government clients reportedly, including the military, expressed serious interest in the megapixel sensor project and demanded prototypes of digital photo equipment that could be used for espionage and covert operations. Kodak presented a series of such prototypes starting in 1988, the first truly portable digital cameras. These were built using modified Canon F1 bodies hooked up to a large external hard drive wired to a camera. Each digital camera prototype Kodak produced during the late 80s was relatively unique, and none of them ever achieved serial production. Only one of these early megapixel Kodaks, the Hawkeye 2, saw real service in a notable role. As part of the STS-44 mission, it was taken up to Earth orbit in 1991 and became the first digital camera ever to take a picture from space. It's worth noting that starting with the Hawkeye series, which was the first of these prototypes to be targeted, not just to government agencies, but also to commercial customers, Codex digital cameras received the tagline of imaging accessory. Many historians and even some contemporary commentators felt that this was a deliberate PR move intended to dissuade the public from the notion that digital photography was here to take over pre-existing media entirely. Again, much of this had to do with Kodak's fears as a business. The Kodak Professional DCS 
1991, the first commercial fruit of Kodak series of digital camera prototypes would be presented to the public. Named the Kodak Professional Digital Camera System, or Kodak Professional DCS, it was, by our contemporary standards, a monstrous and intimidating beast of a camera. For the early 90s, however, it was an incredibly streamlined and downsized portable digital imaging setup that wowed the press with its capabilities and features. Like the prior prototypes, it was directly based on the professional DCS, took a Nikon SLR and built a digital imaging solution around it. In this case, Kodak used a beefed-up Nikon F3, Nikon's third professional single-lens reflex SLR camera body. By taking out the film chamber and replacing it with a 1.3 megapixel digital sensor and permanently attaching a power winder data back combo to the body, Kodak achieved all the necessary technical capability without drastically altering the original camera's ergonomics. This was important to Kodak as the intent of the professional DCS and its planned successor was to win over market share from experienced photojournalists. Making the transition from film to digital easy was imperative in order to convince the demographic that the high price, a cool $20,000 upon launch, was worth paying. The original DCS was a lot more than just a souped-up digitized F3 with an integrated motor back, though. <clears throat> motor back, though. Permanently hardwired to the modified film camera was a huge piece of hardware that Kodak called the DSU, the Digital Storage Unit. This DSU included an LCD screen for viewing your images, an internal hard drive for storing them, and a standard SCSI interface for transferring your files to a compatible computer. You could even connect an add-on matching keyboard to edit, transfer, and process your digital photographs, quote, in the field. Of course, this system had its limitations. Relying on the hard drive meant that buffer size suffered and real high-speed shooting was very difficult. Kodak claimed a maximum frames per second of 2.5, but that was generous. It also made the professional DCS a true pain to carry around. The Nikon F3 body being about twice as hefty in most dimensions as, as the analog version, and the DSU adding a few dozen pounds worth of bulk on top of that. Imagine having to carry around both your DSLR, a permanently attached battery grip, and a compact printer at the same time, and you might get close to what using the DCS felt like in 1991. Kodak did try to make the obvious, this obvious flaw a little bit more manageable for working photographers by bundling the kit with a fitted pouch that allowed you to wear it around your hip or on your back to better distribute the weight. Nonetheless, it's self-evident that the original professional DCS was hardly as usable nor as flexible as a contemporary film SLR. Despite all that, the professional DCS sold in modest yet surprisingly healthy numbers. About a thousand units left Kodak's dealerships in the three years that it was available in the North American market. Not a bad performance for an innovative trailblazer based on prototype technology. Not too long after the original DCS, Kodak introduced a follow-up model with the professional DCS-200 in 1992. Instead of a direct replacement, the DCS-200 was intended as a complement to the original DCS, promptly renamed DCS-100, if only unofficially. Kodak never intended for the DCS-100 to sell in huge numbers, and its designers were well aware of the design's limitations and prohibitive price tag. Hence, the plan from the very beginning was to release a little sister model shortly after the DCS-100 to claim the lower end of the professional photography market and compete where the DCS-100 could not. The DCS-200 did this in a number of innovative ways. Based on the lower weight, Nikon's 800s uh, A008S instead of the ProGrade F3. It consists of power winder, sensor, battery pack, and hard drive compartment, just like its sibling. However, where the DCS200 differed is in how it arranged these components. Foregoing the separate DSU, the DCS200 was the first digital camera that neatly integrated all of its essential components into one permanently attached digital back. 
It did this by exploiting the rapidly advancing hardware specifications of the time. Downsizing in storage from traditional 3.5-inch to the newly released 2.5-inch SCSI hard drives freed up tons of internal space and allowed engineers to move the hard drive bay into the camera back itself. These smaller drives initially couldn't hold quite the same capacity as the larger siblings, and Kodak's initial kit topped out at a meager 80 megabytes. At 1.3 megapixels, with a default output resolution of 1012 by 1524, that means the camera holds enough space for about 50 image files. Not much, but considering the DCS-200 gave the option of near-limitless hard drive upgrades and the use of external storage packs, not unlike a DSU for extra space, many customers did not mind. Instead of lead-acid batteries like the original, the DCS-200 was fed by regular AA alkalines, further saving on weight and bulk while also increasing efficiency. All these refinements resulted in a camera that cost exactly half of the DCS-100's retail price at only $9,995, while offering much more flexibility and portability to the bulk of professional photographers. Sales more than doubled, indicating demand was building up for the digital revolution. Further improvements to the formula. Throughout the mid-1990s, Kodak would dish out further DCS models at a rapid rate. There was the APNC 2000 designed for press photographers and released in 1994. As the name implied, AP News sponsored this model and provided it as a standard kit to many of their staff. The News Camera 2000, yes, that's its real name, would play a significant role in ushering in the age of digital news photography despite its modest production run of about 500 units. Other standout Kodak DCS cameras from this time period would include the DCS 460, part of an all-new 400 series lineup. While most of these models were sort of refreshed previous-gen DCSs, now based on the Nikon N90 body, also known as F90 in some regions, the flagship 460 was different. It sported a newly developed high-resolution sensor that topped out at a radical 6 megapixels, offering image files measuring 2036 by 3060 pixels across. Instead of hard drives, the 400 series also introduced the use of much more compact and convenient flashcards, initially in PC format. This sensor cemented Kodak's image as the leader of the pack when it came to digital camera development, and it sold well. The DCS 460 alone shipped over 5,000 copies, the entire 400 series at least twice that much. The Kodak-Nikon Relationship as they were left mostly unaltered, Kodak's Nikon DCS cameras all still sport the Nikon nameplate on the top of the reflex mirror housing. To avoid possible brand identity issues, Kodak began using a very large white Kodak print on the digital backs and grips of all the DCS cameras, starting with the DCS 200. Even as the official Nikon partnership went ahead, future DCS cameras would continue being physically labeled in the same way, indicating their origins, camera bodies by Nikon, sensors, and digital tech by Kodak. Toying with the Canon EOS system. At a certain point, Kodak realized that tying their DCS line exclusively to one camera brand was a risky move. Hence, between 1995 and 1998, they went on to release a line of cameras in parallel to their 200 and 400 series using the same digital backs, but connected to Canon EOS bodies. Against expectations, the EOS DCS cameras sold just as well as their Nikon-based counterparts. Part of the reason for that might have been that they were developed from the ground up in cooperation with Canon, featuring custom firmware and certain hardware optimizations that the original DCSs lacked. The peak of this Canon-based model line came in 1998 with the DCS 560. While not offering the world-class high resolution of the previous DCS 460 at only 2 megapixels, it seamlessly and very ergonomically integrated its digital back into the camera body, also offering top-flight burst shooting performance at over 3.5 frames per second. Prized among news photographers of the time, it retailed for $14,995. 
In opposition to previous DCS models, the camera was triple branded Canon on the Prism, Kodak on the Grip, and Kodak Professional DCS 560, where the original back connected to the camera near the tripod mount. Unlike the ever-evolving partnership with Nikon, though, Kodak couldn't stick with Canon for long. The Japanese company was the one to cut ties, according to most reports. Arguably, they were planning their own entry into the digital SLR field soon and didn't want to rely on third-party tech to do so. Enter the Nikon D1. In 1999, a new challenger dramatically entered the field that Kodak had single-handedly dominated for an entire decade. Instead of a radical newcomer like Olympus or Pentax, as many analysts had predicted, the first non-Kodak independently developed digital SLR system came from none other than Nikon themselves. Depending on which stories you believe, this radical upset was either a carefully planned succession agreed upon by Kodak and Nikon behind the scenes long beforehand, or a dramatic stab in the back. Either way, the Nikon D1 made serious headlines when it came out. Here you had a camera that required absolutely no learning curve from the professional photographer being almost identical in dimensions to the film-based F5, while also offering compatibility with all existing Nikon lenses, accessories, and software. Furthermore, the D1 offered performance previously unheard of in digital cameras. Its 2.7 megapixel sensor was good for 4.5 frames per second of burst shooting at a record-setting shutter speed of up to 1 16 thousandths of a second, ticking, ticking all the boxes for press photographers of the time. Kodak did actually have a competitor cooked up in just in time for the D1, further indicating that this sudden move was anything but unexpected. The Kodak Professional DCS 600 series, headed by the 660 model was released within a few months of the D1 and was likewise based on the Nikon F5. However, its body was heavier and bulkier compared to the D1, and even though it used the higher resolution award-winning 6 megapixel sensor from the 460, the DCS 660 stood no chance in direct competition with the D1, which cost a third as much at only $4,999 compared to the 14,995 MSRP of its very similar Kodak sibling. The DC doing what Kodak knows best. In parallel to the DCS 400, 500, and 600 models, Kodak also spent some of its considerable budget on the development of more consumer-oriented digital cameras. Point-and-shoots and disposable cameras were selling like crazy, or were selling in crazy numbers throughout the late 90s, so much so that Kodak was actually recording record growth and profits from 1995 to the year 2000, despite the immense cost of its digital camera research program. This made the company highly optimistic about the potential of cheap, easy-to-use, mostly automatic digital cameras for amateur photographers. Almost all of Kodak's entries in this field were branded DC, simply digital camera. The entire lineup, which included over 20 different models, was released at a rapid pace between late 1995 and 1998. The bottom line DCs like the DC-10 and DC-20 sported sensors with less than half a megapixel in resolution, in addition to very basic prime lenses with relatively slow apertures. On top of that, they only included a minuscule amount of flash memory for saving about a dozen pictures at a time. And you had to transfer these to a computer to view them since the cameras themselves came without any LCD screens. Of course, the point of these entry-level cameras was to severely undercut the, com the competition in terms of price. And that the DCS did, coming in at an MSRP of as little as 365 for the bottom-level DC-20, at a time when there were few serious competitors in the digital field far below 500. More advanced models, such as the DC-200, offered megapixel sensors, rear LCDs, and additional controls like AE lock and manual focus override. Ultimately, what doomed the Kodak DC series is that, unlike with the DCS, the company couldn't rely on many years of effective monopoly to rule the market. Before long, dozens and dozens of competitors sprung up all over the low end from established manufacturers like Nikon and Canon, as well as electronics companies that previously had little of a connection to photography like JVC, Panasonic, and Sony.
This tight competition eventually shallowed the DC, uh, the Kodak DC. Even after a rebrand to Kodak Easy Share during the early 2000s, Kodak's entry-level digital cameras didn't manage to turn their fortunes around. The demise of the DCS and Kodak with it. Following the release of the Nikon D1, the Kodak digital camera system entered a period of decline that it would never recover from. On paper, this might come as a surprise since Kodak did not choose to swiftly abandon their product in the face of tough competition. If anything, the opposite was the case. In 2001, the company released the Kodak Professional DCS 700 series, championed by the DCS 760. Though decked out with brand new digital guts on the inside, the 700 was built out of the same Nikon F5 bodies powering the previous model. Starting at $4,995 with a price tag of $7,995 for the top-of-the-line DCS 760, the 700 range proved popular both with photojournalists as well as wedding and event photographers. The F5 body was by the turn of the century an accepted industry standard, and Kodak's electronics traded blows fairly with Nikon steadily improving D1 series. Even in terms of price, the company managed to compete, though Nikon's options were still the more affordable of the two, strongly leading in sales as a result. And increasingly, digital shooters wondered why they should spend thousands of dollars more for a camera that was bulkier than any D1 whilst sporting the same exact button layout, lens mount, and Nikon script on the Pentaprism housing. Then Canon enters the ring. Further complicating things was the arrival of Canon's first DSLR flagship that same year, the EOS 1D. Sporting much faster burst shooting of up to 6 frames per second and better high ISO results than the Kodak while also being less bulky, it managed to steal significant amounts of customers away from the DCS brand. Kodak knew that they were facing an uphill battle trying to face off against Nikon and Canon as well as other professional camera brands preparing their entry into the digital sphere. Hence, they quickly prepared a follow-up flagship model that would vastly outperform anything the competition could offer in the hopes of retaking the proverbial crown and guaranteeing upward sales momentum for the DCS line. The Kodak Professional DCS Pro 14N last of its kind. The new flagship came in late 2002 before the dust of the DCS 760's release had even fully settled yet. In a break with prior tradition, the camera was called the Kodak Professional DCS Pro 14N. The timing of the Pro 14N's release was near perfect, ensuring that it would land on store shelves with a bang. Canon had just brought out their most serious contender in the uh, pro digital SLR field, yeah, the EOS 1DS. Upon release, the Canon stole the limelight. Its high-resolution CMOS sensor was unlike anything else digital camera reviewers had handled before, and it offered both crisp sharpness as well as low noise, even in tricky lighting conditions. It was also the first production DSLR in the world to sport a full-frame sensor, offering the same perspective and depth of field as a traditional 35mm film camera. Though it couldn't shoot as fast as the original 1D and retailed at a much higher $8,999 upon launch, both Canon and the press felt that this was justified given the Canon's class-leading performance and high-tech build. Canon surprisingly lagged behind considerably, offering no major releases for 2002, the company kept relying on its now somewhat long-in-the-tooth D1X and D1H bodies. This was truly the perfect environment for Kodak to come in, burst onto the scene, and change the paradigm entirely in its favor. In a way, this is what the company achieved with its Pro 14N. Offering a state-of-the-art CMOS full-frame developed in-house, the DCS Pro managed to outclass its Canon rival by a solid 3 megapixels for a total count of 14, a world record at the time for a production DSLR. The body, which much sleeker than any DCS camera before it, being based on the Nikon F80, using advanced manufacturing techniques and modifying the original camera body far more than on previous models. Kodak managed to considerably slim down the DCS, bringing it solidly in line with the competition. 
Perhaps as a deliberate jab at their former partner, the Kodak DCS Pro 14N was also the first in the series to feature no Nikon or any other third-party branding anywhere on the body. But the most stunning aspect of the DCS Pro was not the fact that a gigantic corporation like Kodak had managed to produce such a machine. Rather, it was that they could justify selling it at such a low price. At $4,995, the Pro 14N's MSRP undercut both Canon's and Nikon's offerings by literal thousands of dollars, ensuring that all eyes were on Kodak by Christmas of 2002. The only problem? Christmas came and went, and the shiny Kodak was nowhere to be found. Due to problems in manufacturing and quality control, the first batches of the brand new model wouldn't actually be sold until well into the following year. By that time, Nikon had already prepared their next flagship, the D2H. Packing a crop sensor optimized for speed rather than resolution, the D2H became a runaway hit with the demographic that had originally been most loyal source of sales for Kodak's DCS cameras, sports shooters, and press photographers. When it did arrive, the Pro 14N had to compete instead with the Kodak EOS 1DS among portraitists and architectural and studio photographers. In that field, the Kodak's value for money was highly praised, as was the stunning resolution from its full-frame sensor. However, the Canon didn't lag far behind, and it offered those enticing three whole frames per second of continuous burst shooting. The Kodak topped out at 1.7 frames per second with a very high power draw, a deal breaker for plenty of wedding and event photographers. Low ISO performance also lagged behind the competition despite the innovative sensor technology. In the end, the DCS Pro 14N failed to grab the market share that Kodak had intended it to, and the decision was made to discontinue the whole DCS line as a result. Kodak would actually end up releasing two more models afterward in 2004, the DCS Pro SLR-N, based on the Nikon F80, and the Kodak DCS Pro SLR-C, based on the EF mount Sigma SA9. Though these cameras addressed many of their predecessors' shortcomings, in particular by using a revised image sensor that offered far better low-light performance, the damage had already been done. Like the 14N, the Pro SLR-N and the Pro SLR-C only sold in modest numbers and did not see more than a a short year of production. Kodak's Downfall Post-DCS As the DCS vanished over the course of the 2000s, Kodak lost the one chance it had at a a pole position anywhere in the camera market. With the digital revolution accelerating, sales of its once ubiquitous film-based point-and-shoots were drying up. Instead of brownies and instamatics, young young people were increasingly going for Panasonic Lamixes, Canon Power Shots, and others. On top of that, film itself, Kodak's main business for the past century, was losing market share at a rapid rate. All of these factors combined with the 2007-8 financial crisis made for a perfect cocktail of disaster for the once invulnerable photographic giant. Kodak would file for bankruptcy in 2012, emerging in the year after as the two-faced shadow of its former self that we recognize it as today. While Eastman Kodak continues to manufacture film for the motion picture industry, the UK-based Kodak Alaris tries to continue the former company's legacy in photographic film supplies. The idea of designing another range-topping camera system, let alone one that could compete with the best of Canon, Nikon, or Sony, is not even anywhere near the table anymore. What we can learn from the fall of DCS Though Kodak's digital camera system was the first of its kind, combining tried-and-true Nikon optics and ergonomics with stellar digital sensor technology for its time, it did not become the smash hit that many continue to say it deserved to be. Initially, it seemed a wise choice for Kodak to build the DCS out of retail Nikon camera bodies, a design strategy that would be absolutely unthinkable today. While it guaranteed that Kodak did not have to design a a costly proprietary lens lineup for its cameras, it also meant that the company eventually ran itself into a dead end. 
As soon as Nikon and later Canon and others began making their own DSLRs, the flaws of the DCS stuck out to the public. With each of its many subsequent iterations, the DCS struggled with inherent flaws or disadvantages against its contemporary rivals. Perhaps because Kodak spent the vast majority of its R&D budget on the sensor technology, which was indeed cutting-edge, quality-of-life issues such as ergonomics, battery life, and day-to-day usability did not receive the same kind of treatment as they did from others. Today, much of the technology we use in our DSLR and mirrorless cameras can be traced back to the advancements of the Kodak DCS. In fact, if it hadn't been for the original professional digital camera system, it's hard to imagine that sites like Petapixel would exist today. For that reason, it's important to remember everything that the Kodak DCS did right and the pioneering influence it had on the early digital camera landscape. At the same time, the story of the DCS had also served as a fair warning to future generations of engineers, camera designers, and of course manufacturers and photographers themselves. And I thought this was a great story to cover this week just because I know a lot of my listeners don't know the full story of Kodak and their foray into the digital camera market and what became of them, how they fell from grace. Because as this article points out at one time, Kodak was the number one camera company in the world and how far they have fallen from grace since that time. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 371 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. If you're not currently a subscriber, why not? It's absolutely free. It doesn't cost you anything but a second of your time to smash that subscribe button. Do it now, please, so you'll never miss a new episode. And share out the show on social media with all your friends and family and ask them to give it a subscribe as well. Also, please stop by the Layman Photography YouTube channel, subscribe to the channel, turn on all notifications so you'll be notified when new videos release. I will be announcing my next giveaway later on this month, both here on the show and on my YouTube channel, so you don't want to miss that announcement and how you can get your entries in. All right, that's it for this episode, folks. I will see you all again next week.